This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tell your friends about us or remind them that we're back with a full head of steam after our summer break. You might say that today's show is old school. Wood as a building material and running trains on three rail, high rail track. But before you rush for the exits, we promise a fascinating pair of guests to get your gray matter moving and the modeling juices flowing. Later on, I'll chat with Jerry Cornwell from the Mount Albert Scale Lumber Company. First, though, here's Jim with his guest. You might say Terry Gaskin has elevated the art of model railroading. Blogs are a great way to track the construction of one's layout and share the lessons learned along the way. An excellent example is the Port Rowan and S-Scale blog of my co-host Trevor. Another belongs to my guest Terry Gaskin of Chicago, who models the Chicago Transit Authority. On his very first blog post, he mentions sharing his pictures, methods, and knowledge, and goes on to state his objectives of modeling as simply, easily, and inexpensively as possible. Terry's seat TA blog is all the more interesting, if only for the subject he's chosen, the Windy City's famed L, the elevated transit system that rumbles above the streets and traffic and through the brick canyons of that toddling town. With a simple track plan and a pint-sized roster, Terry has captured the essence of the L. And the very first thing that grabbed me about Terry's layout is just how appropriate his Lionel-style three-rail track looks in his carefully crafted scale urban setting. Lots to talk about here. Terry, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Is this your first layout? Uh, yes, it is, actually, and I just want to say thank you for having me, guys. It's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, this is actually my first real layout in terms of one that I've actually had a chance to get to a semi-finished status. I've had the typical 4x8 HL modern era layouts, but never really got beyond the simple loop. So this really is my first true layout. Can you explain for us the attraction of rapid transit? Being from Chicago, the CTA, Chicago Transit Authority, is a major part of the city. Obviously, it runs to almost all parts of the city, and it's something I see on a daily basis since I work in uh, downtown Chicago. So it's something that I've always been fascinated with, and it's something I can see on a daily basis. I don't don't have a lot of room to work with, so rapid transit really lends itself well to a uh, smaller space. By the way, that sound you hear in the background is the other part of our team, Trevor's dogs, Motion and Jack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you didn't have an epiphany standing at a station platform downtown, or did you? Well, no, not really, but it's always been my interest. I've always really been just fascinated by rapid transit, especially Chicago's L. There's something about a system where the entire structure is elevated. It's almost one continuous bridge. So it's just, it's something that's just very interesting. Well, you hit on an interesting point. A lot of guys love trestles, for example. As you say, a constantly elevated platform gives you a lot of modeling to do. You definitely have a lot of trestle bridge style modeling with uh, elevated models. Now, have other modelers inspired you? You mentioned a visit to your layout by Eric Bronski, who I remember from MR back in the mid-70s, Model Railroader magazine, and I marveled at what he was doing. Were you aware of him? Yes. It's funny you should say that. Back when I was a little kid, my uncle gave me a copy of the model railroader from April 1976, which had Eric's article called Farewell to the Old L. When I got that magazine and I read that particular article, I was just fascinated by his modeling skills. 
I've kept that magazine to this day. It's a little worse sort of wear, but I've had it throughout my entire life. Now, as I grew up, I always, as I said before, I dabbled in HO, modern era, did a four by eight, really never got beyond that. But in the back of my head, I always wanted a model rapid transit. I just never had the skills or the models weren't available or the timing just wasn't right. But since I kept that magazine, I've always had that interest. And some of the models have come to you, have they? Some of the... Yeah. Well, your current layout space is pretty small. Is it 12 by 18 feet you mentioned on your blog? Yes, it's an L-shaped layout. It's a shelf-style layout, about 12 by 18. In O-scale? In O-scale, yes. I'm doing three-rail O-scale. So what happened was, as I went through time, and I've always been on the lookout for Chicago-style models, I happened to see that MTH produced a series of CTA 3200 series L-cars, and it struck me that I just have to build it. So I just realized that I finally have cars, I can finally begin a layout, and the rest is detailed in the blog. One of the things I like, and it never occurred to me until I was actually uh, perusing through your blog, is an elevated track gives you an opportunity to build scenery under the trains. (laughs) You actually get some of the modeling benefits of maybe a a multi-deck layout in as much as you can layer scenic effects, right? Of course, yes, because obviously it's easier to model elevated structure rather than subways. So while model railroading is really a 3D hobby, when you add an elevated structure, it's even more 3D, so to speak, as you're right. Yeah. Not only you have to you know, model the, the track and the structure, but you also have to model what is underneath the track. I decided to take a little different route. Typically, you would think that you would model, say, like the Chicago Loop, which would have streets running underneath or even streetcars. My main focus was that I wanted to model Chicago's north side, whether it be at the north side main line, which is called the Red Line now, or the Ravenswood branch, which is now called the Brown Line, which basically ran through private right-of-way, either above an alley or above just basically an open city lot. So it kind of really offers itself up because you're right, you get to model either an alley or a you know streetcar track or whatever you want. It definitely opens up a whole new area of modeling. Now, it does make you want to have actually the structure be see-through, so you have to take that into account. Well, city modeling, especially near and under tracks, can sound gritty and dreary, but I I guess I'd have to say kudos to you for capturing the life and drama and even the aesthetics of these places. Is structure building a a part of what you enjoy, the the structures that frame the train's movements? Oh, definitely. Actually, one of the things that I really found that I enjoy in the hobby right now is actually building the structures. Obviously, with being O-scale, the universe of structure kits is somewhat limited, and especially for those kids that are actually in a style of architecture that you would find in Chicago. So I'm really finding a really enjoyable part right now is basically just trying to capture the look of a typical Chicago, either a two-flat or an apartment building or a factory, something that when you look at it, you will instantly place yourself on Chicago's north side. There's just something about Chicago architecture that being from Chicago, you can spot it a mile away. I really, really enjoy doing that. This is new to me. I haven't yeah. really scratched those structures before. It's been a learning process, and it's just the, the learning has just been so enjoyable. Well, you're learning quickly, and you're learning well, I must say. What about the modeling challenges of building the steel structures for the elevated tracks? Is that a technique you had to pioneer yourself, or did you get some tips from someone else? I did a lot of research on the Internet, and obviously I read Eric's article, and there's a wide variety of a, uh, modeling resources on the Internet that a lot of guys do model New York City subway. But since I wanted to do it my way and I was doing modeling Chicago, my structure did go through several revisions. Obviously, I would build a test section of about three feet long and see how that looked. And I really didn't like how that turned out. So I built another one and I still didn't really like how that turned out. So I finally came up with one method that seemed to work for me. You're right. It's definitely a learning curve because when you do a model railroad, it's easy you can, you know, put down your sub road bed and then put the track down. 
my sub road bed is a model. I actually have to model the structure. So you have to make sure that your structure is level, that your structure will not collapse, that you can work around your structure. It's almost modeling in reverse. So yeah. the structure and the track is done before any scenery, but then you have to take everything off so that you're able to actually scenic underneath the track. So it's been a challenge, but it's been one that through trial and error, I've come up with a pretty decent method of working it out. Well, let's talk track. Why three rail track? Was it because MTH made these cars and they came in three rail? Well, it's basically because I wanted to do the path of least resistance just to get a layout up running. So MTH's cars are three rail and I could have repower them to be two rail or whatnot, but I just felt that was beyond my skill set at the time. So I decided to go with the three rail track. You know, it is kind of semi-prototypical since the Chicago L does actually have three rails. Rails just happen to be in the wrong spot. Typically it's the outside third rail. Mine just happens to be on the inside. So really the whole layout was built around the MTH cars. Everything is sized to make the cars look appropriate to the structure, to the building. So obviously O scale, scale tends to be a little bit more fluid than say an HL. Mm-hmm. So everything's built around the cars and the Gargraves track I went with because they had a solid wooden tie that if you actually look from below the structure upwards, it's a solid tie. Atlas three rail track, while maybe a bit more prototypical in appearance, their ties are hollow. So if you were to look up from beneath the track, you could actually see hollow ties, which wouldn't be prototypical. Points. Um, and I went with Gargraves because it's sectional track, so it's easy to work with in terms of the structure, since handling track would be a little bit difficult because with the spiking to the ties, the sectional track just is able to be uh, attached to the structure a little more easily, and it just makes that part of the actual building of the structure uh, a little bit easier. It is a little bit more tedious than just, say, a normal layout. You know, there must be some real advantages researching the prototype. Just go downtown, you, you can take a ride above or take photos from public places at ground level. What about things like service yards? Does the CTA do open houses like the TTC does here in Toronto? Typically, they do not. But what's kind of fortunate is that most of the normal lines run either through the yards or past the yards. You can typically see them. But more importantly, the uh, Illinois Railway Museum out in Union, Illinois, does a charter each year called Snowflake Special. And on that, the actual charter train will go through various yards where you can take all kinds of pictures and videos. Done that for the last few years. It's a fantastic charter, and all the proceeds go to the museum for the preservation of their various CTA equipment. But what's great is that you can actually go to the yards. We've gone to non-revenue trackage, which is either be a center track for passing or storage track. So you can really get some good research done. But as also you said, it's so easy to just go and take a ride for, you know, you pay your $2.50 fare and you get up close and personal to the prototype, which you typically can't get with, say, like freight. Yeah. If you're modeling freight, you can do your rail fanning. But with actually, I think one of the advantages of transit modeling, I can just go there and walk up to the structure and take a tape measure and do what I need to do. And it's your downtown Chicago. And no one will say a word to you. <laughs> <laughs> True to your promise in your first blog, you are building pretty inexpensively. MDF board and styrene for the L. You're using brick sheets and building papers, making your own window castings and your own inkjet decals. Uh, pardon me. That's Canadian pronunciation. Your own, <laughs> your own inkjet decals. <laughs> Is this out of necessity or, or or just the way you like to do things? It's a little bit of both. Uh, it's out of necessity since, as I said before, O-scale models have a tendency to be a little bit few and far in between in terms of the prototype that I'm looking for. I do have a couple commercial buildings on my layout, but most of my buildings, I think, will eventually be scratch-built. But again, as I started to do this, I really started to enjoy making the structures and the L-structure. It actually is not as hard as I thought. 
I just think if you start and you realize that I'm going to make a mistake and I'm happy with that, but I can always redo it in the future, each project that I accomplish, the next one is that much easier. There are some commercial L-structure kits from various manufacturers, but the cost is kind of prohibitive. With using my method of MDF and styrene and basswood, it got to be where the structure was maybe $5 a foot. So I have about maybe 40 feet of structure. And if you go with a commercial product, it can add up, and it's just another cost to consider. So I'm really happy with the actual scratch building. I'm working on another two-flat right now in an apartment <laughs> building, and it's actually extremely enjoyable. My experience with transit as it goes back and forth, is there any operating potential here? Or have you got any plans to explore that? Yes, actually, I do. Right now, with the layout being only L-shaped, operations are limited to basically out and back, basically rail fanning. But I'm planning an expansion to the layout that will include a couple more stations, a yard, and actually a terminal. And one of my long-term goals is to actually figure out a transit-oriented operating session. Obviously, everyone knows the buzzword today in the hobby is all about operations. Everyone wants to actually operate the railroad and all about switching and freight. But I really want to try to actually have a completely transit-oriented operating session. Got a lot of research to do on figuring it out, but actually have some way of maybe, you know, starting a morning rush hour period, get trains out of the yard, get turn them into road trains, actually have people stop at stations according to a timetable, and have those trains come back to the terminal and the yard and maybe be turned back around and back to road trains or taken to the shops for inspection. I think that's an area that really want to develop because I think it's one area of, say, transit modeling that we nobody's really explored yet. So and that's what I'm really looking forward to do in the future. And obviously, that's going to be a long-term plan because I actually have to build the expansion. But I think it's something that it's a goal that I really want to shoot for. Cool idea. Thank you. Now, we've often talked on the show about how trains have largely disappeared from the average person's life in North America. But in your case, mass and rapid transit would be an, a notable uh, exception. Is modeling these kind of trains you think poised to become a major subset of the hobby? And what can we do as modelers to move this forward? I really hope it does become a major subset of the hobby. I really like the guys who do model, say, like traction, two-rail, inter-urban eras. The guys in the community, I'll give a shout-out to some of these guys, Ed Halstead, Westmoreland, uh, Joseph Frank. These guys all model a little bit older era of two-rail inter-urbans, and that's fantastic, but I didn't get a chance to ride those trains. So I think now more people, as they ride rapid transit and they realize that it can be modeled, it can be modeled in a smaller space, maybe a little bit cheaper, I would hope that more people would take advantage of that and actually create some models. The trains are available, I mean, you can, and you can go from, say, like the MTH3 rail, and there actually are resin kits for more scale models than, say, HL. So there's the wide variety of ready-to-run equipment versus craftsman kits. So you can really have that wide choice. But with more people going on these trains, I think it really opens up because I think people model what they're used to seeing. Mm -hmm. So as more people see these, that I certainly hope more people start to model them. And that's one of the reasons why I did the blog is because I would hope more people would model this because, again, we all learn from each other, I believe. So if someone comes up with a new technique that I don't know, I would certainly like to know. Hey, we'll remind folks, as we always do in these interviews, to check the links to our interviews and certainly uh, take a tour through Terry's blog. Terry, you've done a lot of great work in a short time. Thanks for sharing it uh, with us here on the Model Railway Show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
You know, Jim, the presentation of Terry's three-rail track reminds me of the discussion you had back on show number 10 with Neil Shore. Anybody who hasn't heard that show can pick it up on Train Life, of course. Yeah, three-rail track certainly has some very appropriate applications for people who might normally think scale. Now, in Terry's case, it was the elevated track that somehow just looks right. Neil Shore's situation, Pensy had big high rail, and the diesels put a lot of dark uh, oil right down the center of the track. When you look at it, at, at first blush, it looks just right. So, and, of course, yeah. when you're running the train, who cares, yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. So. I understand from Terry's blog that he's expanding his Chicago Transit Authority layout. That's right. Uh, modest beginnings, but there's still room in his basement to take it a little further, so we'll just keep uh, watching his blog to see how it comes along. Yes, and if you're looking for that, go to our website, themodelrailwayshow.com, check the episode guide for this episode, it's number 41, and you will find a link to Terry's blog as well as other interesting links. Well, while you're perusing our website, also visit our Flickr gallery, and don't forget you can find us on Facebook. And the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Trevor's turn now. While we try to avoid interviews on the show that sound too wooden, uh, the subject matter can sometimes make that a bit difficult, like when the subject is wood. It's time to talk with Jerry Cornwell, a man whose business is taking big pieces of wood and turning them into lots of little pieces. Wood is one of the most basic building materials for modelers around the world. Wood is easy to cut, saw, drill, sand, shape, and glue. It takes paint or stain beautifully, and no workshop should be without a good supply of wood. Good wood. When modelers stock their shops, increasingly they choose the high-quality, fine-grained, fuzz-free wood products from the Mount Albert Scale Lumber Company. It might seem like Mount Albert has been around forever, but 20 years ago the company was barely an idea. To find out where Mount Albert came from, where it's going... And what's up with wood? I'm pleased to welcome the owner of Mount Albert Scale Lumber, Jerry Cornwell, to the Model Railway Show. Jerry, it's great to have you here, and congratulations on almost 20 years of supplying wood to the Model Railway hobby. Well, thanks, Trevor. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. It was one of those things where you blink and wake up one morning and go, wow, where did that 20 years go? I'll bet. Now, I've seen your O-scale narrow-gauge layout, and you've done some remarkable things with wood, beautiful trestles, wharves, structures. Why do you like working with wood? I consider myself a somewhat medium-level modeler, and I find it a lot easier to make wood look like wood than it is to make styrene or metal look like wood. I've seen you know, some very gifted modelers. Uh, Craig Webb comes to mind. It does just wonderful work with styrene. But I always find that you know if I'm building a trestle or something, it just makes more sense to uh, use the same material that the, the trestle was made with, and it, I think easier to achieve good results. I tend to agree with you on that. I tend to use wood for wood and metal for metal as well. I didn't go and start a company to supply wood to the hobby, though. Uh, how did you move from uh, liking to work with wood to uh, actually starting Mount Albert? That happened like most things in life. Uh, pretty much accidentally. It was through someone I knew. The business was actually started by uh, Al Collins, and he and I were in the same train group. He is a gifted worker with wood and with tools, and he saw a need in the marketplace at the same time that he was winding down from the construction business, and he had some cash and decided to invest it in equipment to make it possible to cut wood. And it took him about two and a half years to figure out how to do it. And he started the business. I helped him out with things like computers and catalogs and things like that and uh, eventually joined him as a 50-50 partner in the business. And then about five years ago, um, I bought him out, so now I'm the sole owner. You mentioned that Al saw a need in the market for a product, and if I was to ask you if all wood is created equal, I'm pretty sure you'd say no, it isn't. What should hobbyists look for when shopping for scale wood for their model railway projects? What sort of qualities make good wood? 
for me as a modeler, and I think that, you know, I come back to my own experience always because, uh, you know, I think that's the best way to start, and then obviously feedback from our customers. But people are looking for repetition, in other words, repeatability in terms of the uh, size and the consistency of the wood, the grain and all those kinds of features that make it nice to work with. And I think that's the main factor. I mean, it's just got to be consistent. If you order an S-scale 2x12 from me now, it's going to be the same as the one you ordered, you know, five years ago. We pride ourselves on that consistency. I think that's partially what drives the business. Our main business, Trevor, is supplying kit makers. That's the largest part of our business. People in the hobby see us as, you know, they see the plastic bags in the stores, and they think, oh, these guys sell to retail. And actually, that's not our strength. Our strength really is providing the kit manufacturers with wood. So, uh, if you buy a kit from any number of the major kit guys, South River Model Works, if you're an HO, or Fine Scale Miniatures, or Bill Banta, or Stony Creek Designs in O-Scale, or many of these companies use our wood primarily for their kits. And I guess it's particularly important for a kit manufacturer to have consistent wood because they're putting it into laser machines to cut it, or they're telling modelers you need to use three 2x12s in this instruction. And if one kit has 2x12s that are 2x12 and another one has 2x12s that are one and a half by 14 that's not going to do for the modeler. You can't write instructions around that sort of thing. Well, exactly. And I think that's to get back to the question earlier about how we got started. That's part of what drove it because 20 years ago, there was a hole in the market. Capra pretty much disappeared from the marketplace at that time due to a death in the ownership of the company at that time. And Al saw that as an opportunity. And in fact, we were encouraged by some of those people who became our customers to get into the business because they were finding there was a real shortage for of quality product in the market. It goes around full circle, right? Exactly. Now, when people look at a piece of strip wood, say a, an HO scale 2x4, they probably don't appreciate just how difficult that is to make. It's a lot more troublesome than making a full-size 2x4, isn't it? Well, it's not troublesome unless you have trouble uh, cutting a piece of wood thinner than a business card. You know, uh, <laughs> to us, it's pretty straightforward, but we have the equipment to do it and the expertise. I say to people, you know, if they're cutting something large, if they're doing an O scale 12 by 12, which is a quarter of an inch square, you can do that on a table saw with reasonable accuracy. I mean, you're going to get quite a bit of variation, but if you need four pieces, you know, that's great. But if you're cutting an HO 2 by 4 you're talking about a piece of wood that's 23 thou by 46 thou, something like that. That's thousands of an inch, and that's tiny. In order to do that, you really need specialized equipment. There's very little equipment in our shop that people would recognize because it, none of the equipment can be purchased from Home Depot. Everything was custom-made. We've got tens of thousands of dollars tied up in one machine that does the thin cut, like that 23-thou size for HO. You need a really, really big specialized machine to do that, CNC-controlled. Repeatability is the key thing. And just as an aside, we had a little bit of difficulty with that machine recently, and one of the bearings gave out after 20 years of great service. And the one bearing on that machine was $850. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the equipment is very specialized and designed, you know, for, for one thing, and that's to cut wood to extreme precision. See, now you've just shattered everybody's myth that you do it on very tiny table saws. <laughs> It's a great big machine that was brought into the shop with a forklift. <laughs> You've had to actually create a lot of the machinery from scratch, haven't you? I know that Al was really big on doing that. So some of the cutters that are used are custom designed by you, isn't that right? Yeah, pretty much everything we use for cutting strip wood is all custom made. About the only machine in the shop that most people would recognize would be the bandsaw. And the bandsaw itself looks like it's been attacked by the board because it has a vacuum chuck on it. And we use that for, as a bread slicer to start off on sheets. And we have a sander as well, a precision sander for doing sheets. So 
that equipment looks pretty normal. But the machinery for doing strip wood is very specialized, yeah. Now, you've already mentioned that most of your business comes from manufacturers, and I want to talk a little bit about that side of the business. I've noticed, and I'm sure that other listeners have, that in recent years, the laser-cut kit market has just absolutely taken off. It seems like every week there's new companies coming out, and presumably that means that it's good business for Mount Albert, too, because those people are looking for wood to put in the lasers that they're using. How would you describe your growth over the past two decades at Mount Albert? The whole industry took a shift when laser cutters came out of the market and, and got you know reasonably affordable. Just in terms of the way people design kits changed uh, fairly substantially, and kits also became easier to build because of that, as you know. You have a plywood box, and then you put stuff on the outside of it. It's a lot more rigid and structurally more sound, and if you do happen to knock it or in the process of building it have a little problem with it, it's not going to fall apart in your hands. So it opens up kit building to a much larger audience. It also makes it possible for more people to get into the kit business, which is good for us. We weren't doing sheets initially. We only did railway ties and strip wood initially, and it wasn't until the kit business came along that the demand made it so that it was worth us investing in the equipment to do the sheets. We do sheets for all kinds of companies. And the funny thing with sheets is sheets sell pretty well retail, too. They're pretty high volume on the retail side. But certainly the bulk of those are in the kit manufacturers. We've got an order just going out the door this week for one of the kit guys, and there's four or 500 sheets in there. So a lot more than the average modeler is going to use then in a lifetime, probably. Quite likely, yes. <laughs> yes. Talking about kits, a couple of years ago, Mount Albert entered the Craftsman kit market itself. Many people may not know that that was a move that you took. You create one O-scale kit per year. Tell me about that side of the business for Mount Albert. Uh, why did you expand into doing your own kits? It started seven years ago. We saw an opportunity to work with Roger Malinowski at Stony Creek Designs, who had been one of our customers for years and years. He was talking about how much he enjoyed designing kits and didn't much like the production of them. The production side wasn't all that interesting to him, but he really loved the designing side and the the engineering of it. He, He thought that was a lot of fun and figuring out clever things to do with a laser. And so we saw an opportunity to work with Roger and have him design some kits for us. That's turned into a good business relationship. He designs and uh, helps us develop a kit each year. He works out the engineering of it. He helps uh, with the and does, in fact, most of the laser cutting for us. It's worked out really well because, obviously, with someone like that behind you, you know the kits are going to be high quality and people know his reputation. That certainly helped us. We've done a number of them over the years with mostly very good degree of success. We've had a couple of complete sellouts in the kits, and we've got a couple that haven't sold as well, but we still have some of them available. But uh, we're bringing out a really exciting kit for this year, for 2012, and we're actually working on plans right now for next year, which is also going to be a very exciting kit. I think people will really enjoy that. We have stayed with O-Scale, partially because Roger prefers to work at O-Scale. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is the HO-Scale market has lots and lots of guys doing laser kits. The scale market, not so much. So we figured that we would stay with a smaller production run size, uh, easier for us to handle, and obviously, you know, what our kit designer prefers to work with. Now, of those kits that you've done so far, you, you say you're doing your seventh one now, so you've got six out there. Do you, do you have a personal favorite? Oh, I think by far away, the home run kit we did was the brewery. I think that kit sold out in something like four months. They were all gone. It was an O-scale tribute to the original Campbell uh, Brett's Brewery. And, of course, a lot of people have built that in HO scale. And when we came out with a similar model in O scale, it wasn't exact inch per inch, but it was a very similar design. And we did that with Campbell's permission, of course. 
and it was just a terrific success for us. You had some custom-printed cars done for that as well, didn't you? Uh, we did. We worked with Bachman on that. We didn't actually do the custom printing, but Bachman had brought out a set of brewery reefers, and so we worked with Bachman, and Bachman was able to get us permission from those breweries because they're all real breweries to include the logos so that if somebody wanted to model a brewery that was, say, Dogfish Head Brewery, you can do that, and the logos are included in the kit. Very nice. Have you had any unusual requests for wood products? I seem to recall a story about piano keys once. (laughs) Well, we do get quite a number of people who go online and they put in railway ties, and of course our website comes up and they email us off asking for railway ties, and of course they want real railway ties. And I had a gentleman from China chasing me for quite some time, you know, saying he wanted me to quote on this order for 300,000 railway ties. And, of course, we don't make real railway ties. So uh, I emailed back and said, you know, we we can't do that. And eventually he phoned me because he didn't really understand why I wasn't able to provide him with a quotation. And I finally managed to get him to understand that our, our biggest railway tie is four inches long. So <laughs> he was a little bit disappointed. But, yeah, we did get some unusual requests. The piano keys was interesting. It was a chap in England. In Europe, generally, precision wood is really hard to find. And basswood is used a lot in musical instruments, in particular for, for piano keys. So uh, this gentleman went online and looked for basswood, and our name came up. So he ended up buying a couple of big boxes of basswood from us in order to rebuild a couple of pianos he was working on. Neat. Now, wood used to be hugely important in the hobby. Back when hobbyists built almost everything they needed, we used it all the time. Newer hobbyists may not have discovered the joys of working with wood. Obviously, you'd love to see more of them do that. Uh, Any suggestions for people who are looking for information to improve their skills with wood, either must-read books or DVDs or things like that that they should be looking at? There are a number of sources out there, and any of the magazines have a reason articles. The Narrow Gage and Shortline Gazette is particularly good on the craftsman style approach to model building. Russ Reinberg's uh, publications, they are uh, inspiring in terms of the quality of the model building that's done and just, you know, seeing pictures and uh, reading descriptions of how people achieve different peeling paint effects and things like that. It's just uh, quite, uh, quite fascinating. I think the best advice is to build something, though. I mean, you can read stuff until you're blue in the face, but I think really what you need to do, and if you don't want to start off scratch building, start off with a kit. You know, if you want to start off with a small trestle or something like that, there's all kinds of manufacturers. Hunterline comes to mind where they have nice kits where they build really nice little structures. Those instructions are all there. Shows you how to do it. Do it. You know, just get in there and get your hands dirty and do it. You know, you get more skilled as you go along. You can read 15 articles, but you're not going to be a builder unless you actually build something. And once you've done those uh, small structures and, the, and you know, maybe a laser cut kit or or even just a, a prepackaged classic wood kit without laser cutting, but with the right amount of product and the instructions, that gives you a good start to doing your own work as well. Absolutely, yeah. Those skills are they're easy skills. I mean, sticking wood together with glue and doing things like that. You learn, you know. Over time, you learn to be neater, you learn to you know, produce nicer-looking final product, and it's just hands-on experience. You've done a Wood 101 clinic at conventions. What do you cover in that? Well, that evolved over the years. It started off basically that. I mean, you know, how to scribe and how to get nail holes looking right and all those kinds of things. But what happened in reality was that people had lots of questions about how do you actually make this wood? How do you cut it? I mean, how do you cut stuff this thin and stuff like that? So it ended up turning into a two-part clinic where the first half of the clinic, we basically show them pictures of our shop and show them the various stages of production of uh, various sizes of wood so that they get an understanding of how 
it's actually produced. And people got a real kick out of that and under, understood better what we were doing and how we did it. And like you say, a lot of people were kind of surprised we weren't using little tiny machines to make these things because uh, generally if you want precision, you need size because you need mass. You need something really heavy in order to maintain a very consistent size. We, we cut everything on blades. We don't use laser cutters at all. The only place we use laser cutters is in the laser cutting that's in our kits. But the wood, all the strip wood, all the sheet wood, everything that we cut is all done with blades. It's not done with the laser. Because, of course, with the laser, you get that burned edge, right? Now you've got the wood. Now here's how you can, you know, do things with the wood. So we experimented with stains. We've done hands-on. We turned that clinic into a hands-on. So in the last half of the clinic, people actually build a little trestle thing and uh, take it home with them. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly evolved. You still show people how you can tie knots in some of your smaller items, like the one by two? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Our line is that you have to make your own knots in our wood. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes, and, and that's the other thing, I guess. Uh, you, you've often said that uh, you go to great lengths to make perfect wood so that modelers can buy it and then distress it and punch totally it Totally mess it up, yeah. Completely. And people have asked us that at shows. You know, they said, you know, why don't you just sell junk, you know, your offcuts and things like that. And we have actually started doing that at shows, is bringing stuff that we do not consider, you know, high enough quality to put our name on. You know, it's got a little rough edge or it's got a knot or something like that, and we'll, or it's discolored. And uh, if you're going to stain it or uh, work with it, uh, then it really does need to be precise because you nearly want square surfaces so you get nice, clean modeling. And then, like you say, then they're going to take it and distress the living daylights out of it and make it look awful. So it is kind of ironic in a way. The other thing, of course, we do is that we produce about 50% or a little bit shy of 50% of the, of the wood that we purchase, the, the raw material that we purchase, gets turned into sawdust. So... Because if you think about it, if you're cutting a piece of wood that's only 23,000 thick, the saw blade is 60,000. So for every 23,000 piece of wood, I'm turning 60,000 to sawdust. So we produce a lot of sawdust. And uh, I call that the fuzz. That's the fuzz that we take off the wood for the modelers. Right. And, uh, and of course, our problem is what do we do with it, right? Because there's really no market for it, for it to be useful on an industrial scale, like somebody making fire logs or something like that or somebody making a compressed board. I mean, we just don't produce nearly enough. But for us, we produce a lot. <laughs> so so what, do you, what do you do with it then? Well, fortunately, where we're located now in Stony Creek, because uh, we re- relocated uh, the business a year and a half ago, they collect it and they, uh, they compost it. So, and they don't charge us for that. So they take it away and do whatever they do with it. And we just have to bag it for them and take it out to the street, and they, uh, they take it away. So it actually works out reasonably well for us. I've often been criticized for not, you know, doing something creative with it. But the problem is we already have a business, and it keeps us going pretty much all the time. And we don't really have time to start off something new where, you know, we've got to process that material, do something with it, package it, you know, market it, do all the stuff that you have to do to get stuff out the door. Sure. Uh, we're bus- busy enough getting strip wood out the door. We're, we're not going to see miniature 4x8 MDF boards or, or chip boards. <laughs> well, probably or not with our name on it. No. Okay. <laughs> if somebody wants to do that, I've got lots of, lots of sawdust and they can have, they're welcome to have it. Perfect. Now, uh, on a personal note, uh, you recently moved. Your old layout is gone and you're going to be starting on a new one. What's going to happen in your new train room? The new train room is great. I found something really interesting. I found a 19 19- 58 house with an unfinished basement, which was quite a find because usually house basements are completely finished. You know, they're rec rooms and they've turned into all these different little rooms. And for a model railroader, you're going to pay for that and then you're going to rip it all out, right? So you can build a model railroad. So it was also too big, believe it or not, because I, I realized that you know, on a railroad that side, working primarily alone, I'm never going to build it. So I'm never going to build one that big. So I actually cut the size down. 
I've got a room that's about, uh, it's L-shaped, and it's about 24 by 15 by 28, so it's certainly big enough for one person to build a sizable railroad. And I'm working, I'm uh, going to ON30. I uh, was working in ON3, my last layout, but I've decided this time I'm going to do some stuff in ON30 because the kinds of things that are available in ON30, particularly logging, mining, those kinds of uh, models, small shades, climaxes, that's the stuff I'm really interested in. And, of course, that's very easy and, and uh, inexpensive to do in, uh, in ON30. Well, good. Good luck with the new layout. And, Jerry, thanks for joining me today, and thank you for supplying such great wood to the hobby. Thank you, uh, Trevor. It's been a great 20 years, and we're looking forward to, uh, to the next go-round. So are we. I've been speaking with Jerry Cornwell from Mount Albert Scale Lumber. Well, Trevor, Jerry makes little pieces of wood out of big pieces of wood and does it very well. I just hope he hasn't made a small fortune by starting off with a big one. No. <laughs> if you want to find out more and you're in southern Ontario, Mount Albert Scale Lumber will be open as part of the Homes Club self-guided tour in November. We'll have a link uh, to that on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Well, it's time to pack that bag of strip wood from the hobby shop under our arm and climb the platform for Train 42. That would be show number 42, just a couple of weeks down the line. That's when we'll be chatting with John Landis, who coincidentally has modeled another Chicago railroad, this one 40 feet underground. We'll also welcome back Don Goodman-Wilson, who will describe the NMRA's efforts to bring us the next big, exciting thing in model railroad electronics. Our thanks to Jerry Cornwell and Terry Gaskin for being with us today, and to the rest of the crew, Chris Abbott, Dave Woodhead, and Otto Von Drack for the technical assistance, the music, and the website, respectively. And we should make them trade duties sometime, just for the fun of it. You know, I'd pay money to see that, I think. Not much money, though, guys. Don't get your hopes up. For Trevor, I'm Jim. Thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. 